I am a Hazara, and the homeland of my people is Afghanistan. Like hundreds and thousands of other Hazara kids, I was born in, in exile. The ongoing persecution and oppression against the Hazaras forced my parents to leave Afghanistan. This persecution has had a long history going back to the late 1800s and the rule of King Abdurrahman. He killed 63% of Hazara population. He built minarets with their heads. Many Hazaras were sold into slavery and many others were, they fled the country for the neighboring Iran and Pakistan. My parents also fled to Pakistan and settled in Koita, where I was born. After the September 11 attack on the Twin Towers, I got a chance to go to Afghanistan for the first time with foreign journalists. I was only 18 and I, I got a job working as an interpreter. After four years, I felt it was safe enough to move to Afghanistan permanently. And I was working there as a documentary photographer and I did many stories, like I worked on many stories. One of the most important stories that I did was the Dancing Boys of Afghanistan. It is a tragic story about an appalling tradition. It involves young kids dancing for warlords and powerful men in the society. These boys are often abducted or bought from their poor parents and they are put to work as sex slaves. This is Shakur. He was kidnapped from Kabul by a warlord. He was taken to another province where he was forced to work as a sex slave for the warlord and his friends. When this story was published on the Washington Post, I started receiving death threats. And I was forced to leave Afghanistan as my parents were. Along with my family, I returned back to Quetta. The situation in Quetta had changed dramatically since I left in 2005. Once a peaceful haven for the Hazaras had now turned to the most dangerous city in Pakistan. Hazaras are confined into two small areas and they are marginalized socially, educationally, and financially. This is Nadir. I had known him since my childhood. He was injured when his van was ambushed by terrorists in Quetta. He later died of his injuries. Around 1,600, uh, 1600 uh, Hazara members had been killed in various attacks and around 3,000 of them uh, were injured then, and many of them permanently disabled. The attacks on Hazara community would only get worse, so it was not surprising that many wanted to flee. After Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, Australia is home to the fourth largest population of Hazaras in the world. When it came to the time to leave Pakistan, Australia seemed the obvious choice. Financially, only one of us could leave, and it was decided that I would go in the hope that if I arrived at my destination safely, I could work to get the rest of my family to join me later. We all knew about the risks and the, that how terrifying the journey is, and I met many people who lost loved ones at sea. It was a desperate decision to, take every, to leave everything behind, and uh, no one takes this decision easily. If I had been able to simply fly to Australia, it would have taken me less than 24 hours. But getting visa was impossible. My journey was much longer, 
much more complicated and certainly more dangerous. Traveling to Thailand by air and then by road and boat to Malaysia and into Indonesia. Paying people as smugglers all the way and spending a lot of time hiding and a lot of time in the fear of being caught. In Indonesia, I joined a group of seven asylum seekers. We all shared a bedroom in a, in a town outside of Jakarta called Bogor. After spending a week in Bogor, three of my roommates left for the perilous journey. And, uh, and we got the news uh, two days later that a, a distressed boat sank in the sea en route to Christmas Island. We found out that our three roommates, Nauroz, Jafar, and Shabir, were also among those. Only Jafar was rescued, Shabir and, and Nauroz were never seen again. It made me think, am I doing the right thing? I concluded, I really had no other choice but to go on. A few weeks later, we got the call from the people smuggler to alert us that the boat is ready for us to commence our sea journey. Taken in the night towards the main vessel on a motorboat, and we boarded an old fishing boat that was already overloaded. There were 93 of us, and we were all below deck. No one was allowed up on the top. We all paid $6,000 each for this part of the trip. The first night and day went smoothly, but by the second night, the weather turned. Waves tossed the boat around and the timbers groaned. People below deck were crying, praying, recalling their loved ones. They were screaming. It was a terrible moment. It was like a scene from a doomsday, or maybe one, like one of those scenes from those Hollywood movies that shows that the, everything is breaking apart and the world is just ending. It was happening to us in real. We didn't have any hope. Our boat was floating like a matchbox on the water without any control. The waves were much higher than our boat and the water poured in faster than the motor pumps could take it out. We all lost hope, and we thought this is the end. We were watching our deaths, and I was documenting it. The captain told us that we are not going to make it. We have to turn back the boat. We went on the deck and turned our torches on and off to attract any attention to attention of any passing boat. We kept trying to attract their attention, attention by waving our life jackets and whistling. Eventually, we made it to a small island, our boat crashing onto the rocks. I slipped into the water and destroyed my camera, whatever I documented. But luckily, the memory card survived. It was a thick forest. We all split it up into many groups, as we argued over what to do next. We were all scared and confused. And after the night uh, spending on, on the beach, we found a jetty and coconuts. We held a boat uh, from a nearby resort and then were uh, quickly handed over to Indonesian water police. At Sirang Detention Center, an immigration officer came and furtively strip-searched us. He took our mobile, my $300 cash, 
our shoes that we should not be able to escape. But we kept, the guard, we, we, we kept watching the guards, checking their movements, and around 4 a.m., when they sat around the fire, we removed two glass layers from an outside-facing window and slipped through. We climbed a tree next to an outer wall that was topped with the shards of glass. We put the pillow on that and wrapped our forearms with uh, bed sheets and climbed the wall, and we ran away with bare feet. I was free. With an uncertain future, no money, the only thing I had was the memory card with the pictures and footage. When my documentary was honored on SBS Deadline, many of my friends came to know about my situation, and they tried to help me. They did not allow me to take any other boat to risk my life. I also decided to stay in Indonesia and process my case through UNSCR. But I was really afraid that I would end up in Indonesia for many years doing nothing and unable to work like every other asylum seekers. But it had happened to be a little bit different with me. I, uh, I was lucky. My contacts worked to expedite my case through UNSCR, and I got resettled in Australia in May 2013. Not every asylum seeker are lucky like me. And it is really difficult to live a life with an uncertain fate in limbo. The issue of asylum seekers in Australia has been extremely politicized, that it has lost its human face. The asylum seekers has been demonized and then presented to the people. I hope my story and the story of other Hazaras could shed some light to show to the people that how these people are suffering in their countries of origin and how do they suffer. Why do they risk their lives to seek asylum? Thank you.